Welcome to the PIP Podcast, episode number 34 with Tim Flannery. In this episode, Climate Council Chief, Scientist, Conservationist, Author and Australian of the Year, Tim Flannery, gives Robin a reality check on where we stand in the fight against climate change and where the future is really heading based on current action, attitudes and trends. Tim Flannery is a scientist, an explorer, a conservationist and a leading writer on climate change and in 2007 was voted Australian of the Year. He's written many books including The Weathermakers, Sunlight and Seaweed, Atmosphere of Hope and he's currently Chief Counsel of the Climate Council. Tim's latest book is The Climate Cure, Solving the Climate Emergency in the Era of COVID-19. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Tim. It's a pleasure, Robin. Thanks. And um, so in 2005, you wrote The Weathermakers, and in that you said that you believe that if everyone who has the means to do so took concerted action, we could stabilise the cryosphere. But for that to happen, individuals, industry and governments need to act on climate change now, and the delay of even a decade is far too much. So here we are, over a decade later. Where do we stand? What changes what positive things have happened and what is what hasn't happened that needed to happen and where do we kind of stand as a global as a planet in 2020 unfortunately we've missed the opportunity to do that um so i wrote that way back in 2005 and it's been 15 years now and the world has been tracking the worst case scenario in terms of greenhouse gas emissions so the cryosphere is now starting to destabilise. Um, so we've left it too late. We have to lower our, our ambitions, really. What um, what can we do at this point in time? So you've written this book um, and you relate in it uh, the the changing climate with the pandemic. How why is now an important time to be really acting on that? And what is the link with the pandemic and what we're talking about? Well, this is really the last chance, you know, back in 2005, we had the opportunity to avoid a lot of damage, which is now unavoidable. But if we don't act now, we really threaten to cross some tipping points um, that will plunge the Earth's climate into um, a a point of no return, really, where things will just keep on getting warmer no matter what we do. So, you know, in terms of the COVID pandemic, Think back to March 13th this year when the disease was doubling, number of cases was doubling every four days. That's about where we are with climate change today. We're at that last moment where we can turn back the tide. But it does need action like now in the next few years if we're to do that. Mm. So what action is it that we really need? Where do we need to be focusing our energy? Because obviously there's so much that needs to be done. Yeah. What's the most important thing that we need to be doing? Well, look, there's three things that the COVID pandemic has taught us that we need to do. Um, the first is we've got to stop the, the spread, right? And that means cutting emissions of greenhouse gases. So we need to be cutting them globally by about 8% a year, every year, out to 2030, in order to, it's the equivalent of a lockdown, in order to stop the spread. Mm. So what, what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, think about it in your own life. If you've got a, you know, a car that, that, that uses, um, you know, 10 litres of petrol every 100 kilometres, you can, you can drive at 8% less every year or you can buy yourself a car that's more efficient, you know. 
Um, so, but we have to do that at a global scale. See, this is not just us, it's a global scale. So we need to start burning less fossil fuels. And there's a lot of indications that will happen, maybe not at that, that extent, but you, know, you look at the growth in renewables, you look at the growth in electric vehicles and energy efficiency, and now with Biden in the White House, I think there's a good chance that we'll start on that journey. But we have to really make sure we make the deadlines, which is the 8% per year. They're not set by people. That's set by the physics of our planet, you know. Mm, yeah. And what are the other things? You said there were three things. Yeah, the other two. Uh, the second is to make sure we've got enough capacity in our emergency response to deal with all of the casualties that we've already created. So we're now in a position where there are a number of inevitable changes that will occur one of them being the changing bushfires, for example, in Australia, another being the consequences of ever more extreme heat wave, uh, of, of declining rainfalls, of impacts on biodiversity, the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. You know, We need to have enough capacity to make sure that we can deal with those consequences in a way that optimises the outcome for nature but doesn't destabilise our society. So what, what do you mean by that? Well... Just if you think about it in COVID terms again, you know, the government with COVID had to make sure we had enough emergency room beds to deal with the, with mm. the casualties that were coming down. We had to have enough tracing capacity. We had to have enough medical staff, all that sort of stuff. So in terms of climate, what we have to do is, again, make sure we've got enough emergency capacity in our hospitals to deal with the heatwave victims. Make sure we've got enough capacity to deal with the inevitable bushfires that are going to come. Make sure we're doing everything we can on the Great Barrier Reef to give the reef a chance of survival. And that includes stopping uh, deforestation in the headwaters of the, the rivers running into the reef. It means um, you know, cleaning up the water that's coming in from other sources, such as ineffective sewage treatment plants. And the, New South, the, the Queensland coast is full of those, you know, through to taking fishing pressure off the Great Barrier Reef. A whole lot of stuff needs to be done for that, to give that emergency capacity. Um, and the third thing that needs to be done is we need to um, search for a vaccine. And, you, you know, if you cast your mind back to earlier in the year, many people were saying, you know, search for a vaccine is highly uncertain. It's going to be extremely expensive and it'll take a long time. Now, it turns out with the COVID vaccine, we were lucky. Yes, it did cost many billions of dollars, but it looks like we're going to have a vaccine. The equivalent of a vaccine for the climate problem is what David Attenborough outlined in his documentary, his latest one, A Life on Earth, where he said, we have to allow the planet to heal. We have to stop damaging the forests. We have to um, uh, stop um, uh, damaging the oceans through overfishing and let the natural system start to heal itself again. And we can accelerate that. We can plant trees. We can grow kelp and seaweed in the oceans. We can use a particular kind of rocks called silicate rocks to soak up CO2. So there's a whole lot of things we can do in terms of pursuing a vaccine. But like the COVID vaccine, it's going to be a long process. It's going to be uncertain and it's going to be expensive. But, you know, that is the ultimate cure. If we can get some CO2 out of the air, restore our planet to health, we'll be back on a stable footing. Mm. And in your book you talk about... Um yeah, the reduction of fossil fuels being kind of really the main thing we should target on. Um, how how do we as individuals have an effect on that? Like when it sort of is up to governments or big business, or what can we do as individuals to 
try and make some change on that level? Yeah. Look, the biggest single roadblock in terms of us taking action is the fed, current federal government. Mm. There are probably 25 members of that government who are holding back action. So for readers of your magazine, you know, the single most important thing they can do is to organise to, to a political challenge against some of those people. So you need to go and meet your local member, ask them the hard questions about what they will do in terms of this climate crisis, not what they can't do or not what their party won't do, but what they will do mm. about that. And if the answers are unsatisfactory, you've got to tell them to their face, I will be organising a challenge against you. Mm. And we have we have a community group here, we have a number of people, and we'll be putting an independent up or, or someone else up um, to, to depose you because you're not representing um, the views of, of your constituency. And this is an emergency. Mm. And that's what we need to do. We've already seen this challenge start to grow. So some of the idiots in our parliament, like Craig Kelly, are under severe challenge and they need to go because if we can silence those voices, um, make it clear that they won't be tolerated anymore, we will get a better outcome in this government and, of course, in the next one. Mm. Yeah, because part of the problem is the kind of misinformation that gets spread and creates fear in people that makes them fearful of what a, a change might look like. That's true. But the biggest problem is that federal parliament of ours, and that's our parliamentarians. So I've come to the conclusion, sadly, that we can put solar panels on our houses, which is fantastic. We can buy electric vehicles, wonderful. We can invest in seaweed or whatever else. It's all great. But we're not going to get the scale of change we need till we get a change in our representation. Mm. And I spent last year up in Warringah trying to get rid of Tony Abbott you know, mm. supporting Zali Stegall. And we actually succeeded. That seat had never been out of Liberal Party hands for many, many decades. And um, if we can do it there, we can do it anywhere. Yeah, so it's actually getting in there and trying to change the system. It is just organising. Get a group of people to organise, meet your parliamentarian, work out whether they're worth supporting or not. And if they're not, then you've got to do the hard work of getting an, someone else to challenge that person. You also talk about some of the um, bigger companies seem to be uh, not investing so much in their fossil some of the fossil fuel industries are cutting some of their projects is that something that's happening absolutely yeah that is happening look the other thing you can do i don't want to burden people with a great list because they never get done but if you're still buying your power from an agl or one of those companies that's opposing reform in new south wales in terms of um you know the market reforms to get more clean energy in the market you've just changed change your, your um your provider mm. you know Go to someone who does care about um, making this a greener world. Yeah. Um, and for big companies as well, I mean, if you've got superannuation, you know, just ask your superannuation uh, company or your, your managers uh, whether they're investing in fossil fuels. And if they are, change. Mm. Now, these are small things, but they're important. But, you know, if you've only got time to do one thing, get involved in politics. And, yeah, I mean, there are lots of great companies out there that can support, that are supporting good investments rather than those negatives lots and lots increasingly large numbers of them and so i mean originally that it was sort of talked that it was more expensive to go to renewables but that's not actually the case is it well it, it, some years ago it was more expensive and um you know thankfully countries like germany made the investments that were required to bring down the price and now over most of the world the cheapest energy you'll get is from wind and solar Mm. So, but what's happened is that the incumbents in the industry, so the people who own the coal-fired power plants, 
just want to make a fat profit for another year. And for that, they're willing to sacrifice our climate security. And that's not good enough. That's where we have to change things in a rapid transition. This whole idea people talk about an orderly transition so people don't lose money. Sure, you can have an orderly transition financially, but what you'll get in nature is a very disorderly transition mm. to a new and messy and dangerous climate. And we can't afford that. Yeah, and we've, we've seen with the pandemic that when it's necessary for people's health, that we can make those harsh decisions that may affect the economy, but actually we're doing it for the health and well-being of people and the well, in that case, people, in this case, the planet and people. Well, exactly. You know, we've done it for COVID, we can do it for climate and we need to do it for climate because the risk to every bit is great. You also say that like there's sort of 22% of the Australian population have now installed solar panels. So is this sort of showing that people, that communities are, I mean, because you hear this, I mean, people are voting these governments in and voting these things to happen. But from from my point of view, which it seems like there is a much, you know, it's really growing the engagement with the environment and people caring about it. Oh, look, it really is. And things are changing. Um, you know, 80% of people want action on climate change, but a small group of people are holding us hostage. As, you know, Malcolm Turnbull put it, there's a group of people in the Liberal Party who act like terrorists. They threaten to blow the place up if they don't get their way. We've got to identify those people and get them out of Parliament. They don't represent Australians anymore. So what, what... What would it look like if you were able to, you know, click your fingers and be in charge and make those changes? What what would the changes look like and what would our communities, our environment look like if that could happen? Well, the first thing you would do is the energy transition. In, in Australia, we should be able to transition out of fossil fuels, with, except perhaps for a little bit of gas, for energy, for electricity generation rather, within five years. We can do that, yeah? Mm. And, and we need to start doing it. And, and what we need to do with those communities that, that have been dependent upon coal, and there's not many of them, not many people actually involved, is offer a just transition. Mm. So we make sure that not a single job is lost in those communities, that they come along with us on a journey. And, you know, there's a mighty job to be done out there. You know, if you go fly over the Hunter Valley, you'll see that the place is a moonscape. Mm. And, you know, we've spent decades digging holes up there with bulldozers and paying people to do it. We're going to be spending decades filling those holes back in with bulldozers, you know. So we need to, we need to make sure that those jobs are there for remediation, for new energy, um, whether it be pump-up hydro or whatever else it is. Um, we need to invest in other things, making sure that the economy is going to be strong and that opportunities are taken advantage of wherever for those communities so they end up more prosperous than what they are today and they're really suffering today because you know their members telling them if you haven't got coal you've got nothing and that is a lie it's a lie which is designed to keep them dependent upon those people telling the lie and you know those places are hemorrhaging jobs because the coal industry is is losing money you know the coal price has rarely been lower and so, um, you know, we need to reach out to those communities to bring them along with us. You know, so that's the first thing. I'd say electric vehicles, we need to go hell for leather. We need to have every incentive offered for electrification of transport, at the state and federal level. That just has to happen really quickly. And that will benefit our country. We won't be buying oil from Saudi Arabia anymore and facing the deficit that we face to pay for that. Yeah, I think electric vehicles are a great example because... We're set up for it. I mean, I mean, well, 
it'd be great to buy them, but often they're just not the right, they're not quite the right fit for families or for people living remotely. And yeah, it just needs that encouragement. Well, Robin, you know, the point is, I think last year we had four models of electric vehicles available. In Europe at the moment, there's about 150. Mm, And the reason there's so few here is that government incentives are so poor. You know, so we need to change all of that. We can have this tomorrow if we want it, have that diversity. Tomorrow if we change our regulatory framework. And, you know, the third thing we need to do is to protect our, our, the environment that keeps us healthy. We need to stop logging the forests. We need to take care of the Great Barrier Reef. We need to get into f- make sure that farming is done on a more sustainable basis. And these are no-brainers. These are the things that we need to start doing quickly to create that vaccine, to create that, that opportunity for the planet to heal itself. Mm. Yeah, in your book, Sunlight and Seaweed, you talk about how seaweed is, can provide a solution. Could you explain how that works? Sure. Well, look, seaweed is, is great for drawing down CO2 because it grows so fast. You know, some seaweeds can grow a metre a day. Mm. That's all CO2 sucked out of the atmosphere. And also we can we can put that CO2 somewhere. We can put it in a deep ocean. A lot of seaweed already gets into the deep ocean naturally. So we're not suggesting anything kind of unusual here. And the deep ocean is a vast place. You know, if we took half of the CO2 in the atmosphere and put it in a deep ocean, you'd only increase the concentration of CO2 in a deep ocean by 2%. Mm. So taking 50% out of the atmosphere and putting it in a deep ocean, only increasing it by 2%. That's because the deep ocean is so much larger than the atmosphere. Mm. So we know we can do some of this stuff. We have to go with caution, obviously, but the opportunities are there to let the planet heal itself at a really large scale if we start pursuing them. And what are the, some of the projects that have been happening over the last little while, like not like globally, but also I know you've done a lot of work with local councils and state governments have been doing things. What are some of those changes that are starting to happen that we can already see working? Oh, look, we're seeing fabulous things, particularly with the, with the councils, you know, everything from uh, recycling um, through to uh, green waste through to more sustainable use um, materials for road surfaces, um, through to, to more efficient lighting, through to bulk buys of solar panels for, for the socially disadvantaged. It just goes on and on and on. I mean, the list of what's happening at the local area is just fantastic. And it's one of the things that give me great hope. But we could be going at relative warp speed if the federal government would support us, you know. All of this work with councils is coming out of a not-for-profit organisation called the Climate Council. I mean, we're supporting a lot of this stuff and on, on public donations. Imagine if the federal government got behind that and started doing things, how much more we'd be able to do. And what about like with electricity? I know um, the ACT's gone to 100% renewable and South Australia's doing some great things. What, what's happening there? Well, the nation could make the transition in five years if we wanted to, you know. What we're seeing at the moment is, is that the, the, coal, the people who own the coal-fired power plants are pushing back against reform because they want to keep on making fat profits for another few years. And to do that, they're willing to sacrifice the whole planet's climate security, including their own children's, which is completely wrong. So we could make that transition much faster than we are at the moment. Mm. So what about, apart from actually stepping up and getting into politics, which I know wouldn't be for everyone, what are some sort of smaller actions that people could kind of do to support those changes happening? Look, we can do things in our own lives, but the fossil fuel industry wants you to think you're the problem, right? Takes the spotlight off them. Right? 
So yes, do things in your own life, do whatever you can to, to, to reduce your emissions, but getting into getting involved with politics is easy. Mm, yeah. Talk to your local member. That's what they're there for. Don't take no for an answer. Organise with your friends. Look at what's happened in Indy with the with the kitchen cabinet. You know, small group of people there changed the face of Australian politics. You know, that change in Indi brought about um, Zali Stegel. You know, and if we had three Zali Stegels instead of one, this would have been a minority Liberal government dependent upon independents who take climate change seriously, and we'd be living in a different world. Mm. So it can be done. So please don't think that politics isn't for me. It's what needs to happen now, that move. And what about um, actual sort of protesting and sort of just raising that public awareness? Does that help as well? Just sort of the more people that are kind of aware and thinking along that lines, surely that would sway the public, the government's action in some level? Well, there's a role for protest, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, and, and maybe we can... We can do some things there, but you know, look at look at the Adani mine and the protests, the massive protests we've had there, and Gautam Adani just because he's too proud refuses to back out of it. You know, um, so there is a role for protests, but there is an absolute role for attacking the problem at its root cause, which is the fossil fuel industry and all their apologists in federal parliament. This is and this is an emergency, if I could say, Rob. We're not just dealing with a normal problem where we might have years. We've got a few years to deal with this problem now, which is why I've become so emphatic about action now. So what are we talking? What timeline are we looking at? Well, no one can look into the future, but, you know, the chances of, of, of staying below one and a half degrees will probably be gone in the next few years if we don't act. Mm. The chance of staying below two degrees will certainly be gone in a decade if we don't act. And so next year there's COP26 in Glasgow. How important is that? for making change globally? COP26 will be the critical meeting. Mm. If we can't increase our ambition above the Paris, um, you know, targets, not targets, but the Paris um, contributions, national contributions, um, then we are in for a very, very rough ride. We'll lose control of the climate system. So um, really so much hangs upon, upon Glasgow. And you hope that the Australian federal government will play a positive role. And again, that's why I think putting pressure on that government, yep. putting pressure yeah. on its recalcitrance is so important. Because mm. if we do that now, we might get the right representation. That's right. If people like Craig Kelly and, and you know, Angus Taylor can see that they're not going to win at the next election, they will lose credibility within the party. So we need to make a very, very loud and active effort there to get rid of those people that Malcolm uh, Turnbull have called terrorists, move them on and get better people to represent us and, and, and the, the requirements of, 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 of our society. So what are some of the most, when we go in there, what are some of the most important questions that we should be asking? You need to say, what will you do about climate change? Will you support Zali's bill, the independence bill on climate change? That's the first thing. Will you set a target for Australia that will keep us safe? Will you vote for that if an, if an independent member put up such a piece of legislation? Um, what are you going to do within your party to, to convince people? Will you break party solidarity to save the planet? And if the answer is no, it's too bad. Yeah, yeah. They don't have a role in our federal parliament. They, they're certainly not your representative. Mm. But what you then have to do is to go back and organise a group of people who will stand against this. So you know what, what your current member thinks, what they've said. 
Uh, and that should galvanise others to take action if those answers are inadequate. Mm. So do you have hope for the future, Tim? I do. I, um, look, I do. Um, I, this is the fight of our lives at the moment. So this will determine. I, I wrote I didn't want the climate cure to be an obituary, but it will be an obituary if we don't take action um, between now and Glasgow and, and the next few years after. Okay, well, thanks, Tim. It's really important to hear these words, and even if they're a little bit hard to stomach in some ways, it's it's really important that we actually um, pushed into action at this time because... People, yeah, we do need to understand how, how important these next few years are. Mm. I've been warning for, for decades, but, you know, we had the luxury of doing things in a more measured way before, but, but mm. no longer. Yeah, we need to take action like we have over the last six months with COVID and make those same sort of dramatic changes or else it's going to be much worse in the long run, isn't it? It is. We're just at that point now where, you know, the the epidemic, pandemic's doubling every four days. We're entering that phase now, so action now is critical. Well, thanks again for your time. I know you've got a busy schedule. That's okay, Robin. Lovely to see you again and good luck with everything. You have been listening to the PIP Permaculture Podcast with Tim Flannery. Subscribe to our magazine or read more articles growing and foraging at our website, pipmagazine.com.au or follow us on social media.